So Paul was on a journey from Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi to Rome, where he has to defend himself against trumped-up charges the unbelieving Jews have made against him. He's taken on a ship, a prisoner in chains guarded by a Roman centurion uh, called Julius and some other Roman soldiers. Paul's accompanied by Luke, who's the author of Acts of the Apostles, and by Aristarchus from the church at Thessalonica. The journey from Caesarea on Judea's coast to Rome, it started in August AD 59, and it should have taken four weeks, but it's taken over six months. And despite the worst that men and weather can perform, Paul arrives in Rome the end of February AD 60. Paul's granted special privileges by the Roman centurion and his soldiers, and he's welcomed into the city of Rome as a greatly honoured guest by the mainly Gentile Roman church. Only the attitude of the Roman Jews to Paul remains unknown. So we're very close to the end of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. After tonight, there'll be only two verses left to go. And as we read this book, the Acts of the Apostles, and it's a very readable book, you can read it all in an evening after you've had your tea. As we read it, we can see that it's uh, what you'd call nowadays a, a road book. You know, they've got these road mu movies. It's a, it's a book recording journeys, the various journeys of Peter and, and then that Paul make. But its content is very clearly about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and about taking the news of this to the Eastern Mediterranean countries. Now, the crucifixion took place on Friday the 4th of May, AD 33, 14th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. And the resurrection was Sunday the 6th of April, AD 33, the 16th of Nisan. Acts 1, 3 says, Jesus presented himself alive. That's, that's a good proof, isn't it? It's a good proof of somebody being alive if they present themselves alive, isn't it? You, you can hardly deny that. Hi, folks, it's me. He presented himself alive after his suffering, having been seen by them by many infallible proofs. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Jesus presented himself he is the first witness to himself being alive. And he presented himself for a period of 40 days, nearly six weeks. And he's utterly convincing, isn't he, to the, to the church, to the apostles. And um, now at the back of the room, there's a couple of leaflets I've prepared for you to take home and study. And uh, I'll test you on them next Sunday. Now, but there's a couple of leaflets. And the first one... Uh, it's called Many Infallible Proofs, and it's dated the 25th of May, 2008. And that's when I preached on Acts chapter 1. And we looked at those infallible proofs. I'm not going to go through them now. They're there on the sheet. Look at them. Many infallible proofs. It's small writing because there's a lot of proofs on there. Take it and be satisfied. There's many infallible proofs. And there's a few Old Testament prophecies on there. 
Um, there's some of, of the physical evidence that was found on the day of the resurrection, such as the empty tomb and the grave clothes left. There's eyewitness accounts of meeting with and talking with the raised Jesus over a 40-day period, including Jesus uh, meeting with over 500 people at once. And then there is Christ's, Jesus Christ's bodily appearance. Yes, it's the same Jesus who was crucified because he's got the marks on his body and on his hands and side to prove it. He can talk, he can eat and drink, but this is also a glorified body, able to pass through walls and to appear and disappear at will. And then there's this devastating local and even international impact of the resurrection. Thousands who saw the crucifixion in Jerusalem believe the authorities are humiliated and scandalized. So pick up a leaflet at the back before you leave and look at those things a bit closer. Now the apostles, the book's called the Acts of the Apostles and we see the apostles in this book. And in the first few verses of the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus himself states what an apostle will be. Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus speaking, the raised Jesus speaking to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Unfortunately, that included Liverpool 8. And so we've come to hear this message. The apostles are not just witnesses to Jesus' ministry, but they are witnesses particularly to his bodily resurrection. So when the disciples pick a replacement for the traitor Judas in Acts 1 verse 21, Peter says it's necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was among us, beginning from John's baptism, to the time when Jesus was taken up from him, up from us in his bodily ascension, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the apostles are witnesses, and a witness testifies to the truth of something. In this case, the bodily resurrection of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Now, I've made a list on another sheet of paper, made this on another sheet of paper, of 11 references in Acts of the Apostles, just in Acts of the Apostles, I haven't looked at the other books, which explicitly say the Apostles are witnesses. So we have the risen Lord telling us the, apostle, the Apostles that they're to be the witness, witnesses. We have Peter telling the church that the Apostle to replace Judas must be a witness. And later on in uh, Acts 2, we have Peter telling the Pentecost cry, crowd, and then later in Acts 4, 5, etc., telling the high priest and the Sanhedrin that they are witnesses. Peter later tells the Roman Cornelius that he's a witness. And then Paul, later on in Acts 13, when he's preaching to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch, uh, he says that he's a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally today, in Acts 28, verse 23, which I read earlier, 
it says that Paul explained and solemnly testified to the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. What do you think Paul said when he made that testimony? So we've got all the apostles witnessing about Jesus' resurrection from Judea all the way to Rome, which was the capital city of Europe at the time. So the apostles are witnesses to the bodily resurrection from the dead. Eleven references. I'm not going to read them out now. It's there on the sheet. Get it. It's a fantastic resource. Right, so the apostles are to be witnesses. And time and again in Acts, as you read it, they do in fact witness that Jesus is bodily raised from the dead. And uh, in the middle of this sheet, I've listed 43 references in Acts of the Apostles where the apostles explicitly mention resurrection from the dead. There's only about a thousand verses in Acts of the Apostles and 43 times they explicitly mention resurrection from the dead. In Acts 28, 23, which, which we read, which I just mentioned before, it says that Paul was persuading them concerning Jesus. It doesn't explicitly mention the resurrection from the dead there, so I haven't included references like that. But you can bet that Paul did mention the resurrection when he was speaking to these Jews. But there's 43 where it's specifically mentioned. So get that leaflet. So that's the beginning of it. And then there's the middle. And we'll come on to the a little bit later. So the Bible clearly teaches that apostles are eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this incidentally is why there's no apostles alive today. And indeed for the last 1900 years, no one has seen the bodily Jesus Christ since the apostle Paul saw him on the Emmaus Road and shortly afterwards in Arabia. Nobody can be an apostle today. If they say they are, they're not qualified to be so because the Bible is clear, the Lord Jesus Christ is clear, Peter and Paul are clear, you have to have seen the bodily raised Jesus yourself and be an eyewitness of that. So, so the, so the apostles' purpose is to be a witness to, his to Jesus' resurrection, and this they did, constantly preaching about his death and resurrection and the consequences of it. And one of the consequences of Jesus' death and resurrection is forgiveness of sins through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on that cross. This preaching spoke to some hearts and some people believed. But for others, they not only did not believe, but they reacted furiously, often violently, against this teaching. It's there in, the, in Acts. We've, as we've gone on this journey in the last 10 years together, going through the Acts of the Apostles, we've seen time and again unbelieving Jews being incredibly intolerant of Paul's message. Why? 
When did you last get intolerant of some theological or whatever message in such a way? Well, let me tell you something. Jewish religious society was split mainly into two doctrinal camps, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Acts 23.8, which we read a few months ago, tells us that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. And also that they're neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. The Sadducees were aristocratic and wealthy. And from about 150 BC, it was the Sadducees that controlled the temple and the great office of high priest. And they were very prominent in the Sanhedrin. That's the council that ruled both Jerusalem and Judea. They were the politicians, the priests, and the merchants. They were aristocratic and wealthy. In the New Testament, the phrase chief priests in the plural is used much more often than the word Sadducees. So the, the two groups, the chief priests are the Sadducees on the one hand, and the Pharisees are also known as the teachers of the law. Now the Sadducees controlled the temple and so controlled much of the religious and daily life in Jerusalem and Judea. The temple was the center of the Jewish religion. It's where God had come down. Keith mentioned it this morning, descended in the Shekinah glory and visited his people. The temple was the place of sacrifice and where the whole nation had to come regularly for the national feasts. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible. Wow. You could read your whole Bible in a couple of days then, couldn't you? It wouldn't take you a year as now. It's just that much there. Now that's, that's, all they, that's all they accept, the first five books. Right? And um, so they denied the inspiration and authority of the other 34 books of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' doctrine, contradicts the Sadducees. The Sadducees have many interactions with Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels. Um, each of the synoptic writers record Jesus, uh, the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus by questioning him regarding the resurrection with a theoretical account of a woman who gets married seven times whose husband dies shortly after each marriage. Uh, and they ask Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Well, Jesus puts them right. First of all, he tells them there is no marriage in the next life. So she won't be anybody's wife. And he also, because uh, he says that in the next life we'll be like the angels. Angels do not engage in sexual intimacy. Right? And he also said, Jesus, that God had declared in Exodus 3.6, that's where God speaks to Moses at the burning bush, which again Keith referred to this morning. When God speaks to Moses, he mentions the patriarchs who had died more than 400 years earlier before Moses' time, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
and these continue, and he says the God of the living and not of the dead. These people continue to live in the presence of God because it's in God that we live and move and have our being. And if we are alive to God, then we are alive. And by, by implication, God's unfulfilled promises to the patriarchs would come true, were still about to come true, when those patriarchs had their future resurrection. So the, the Sadducees, Sadducees were told off and they went away. Jesus said to them, Matthew 22, 29, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. They said that there was no resurrection of the dead and they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. I read from Deuteronomy at the beginning of the, the service where God says to Moses, there is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring life. I have wounded and I will heal. Obviously they didn't know that. Note the order, I put to death and I bring to life. And that verse is also elsewhere in the Bible in a, puts quite similarly but differently. But each time the order is God puts to death and then brings to life. That is significant. God can raise the dead, proven easily from the first five books of the Bible, which the Sadducees accepted. Jesus said, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Now that's a stunning rebuke to those who are the religious leaders of the whole land, isn't it? In whose ranks is the high priest? that they do not know the scriptures. That's their day job and main function, to know the scriptures and declare and explain them to the Jewish people. It's a bit like somebody telling me that I don't know what Ohm's law is. If you're into electronics, it's one of the most very basic things. V equals IR. It's the relationship between voltage, current and resistance in a circuit. Moreover, Jesus said, they did not know the power of God. And what a damning indictment of their spiritual position. Maybe it was their refusal to accept 34 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Maybe that resulted in them being mainly ignorant of their contents. There was so much about Jesus' ministry that upset the, the Sadducees. Jesus taught about his own future resurrection. I lay my life down and I take it up again. His teaching about the second coming and about his role in the second coming as the judge of the raised dead. His teaching about the resurrection of the living and the dead. His teaching about the angels acting as his personal servants in collecting the just and the unjust before that judgment. This, this must all have rank, rankled. The story of the rich man and Lazarus mentioning the intermediate state of souls in hell and in heaven. 
the rich man, the Sadducees were the rich ones in society. Maybe that rankled a bit with them. And Jesus taught about the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. That's their personal power base. That would anger them, wouldn't it? The Sadducees would have hated the claims that Jesus was transfigured on the mountain and that when he was transfigured, he met both Moses and Elijah because they denied life after death. There was so much about Jesus' ministry that upset the Sadducees. Not only did Jesus' authoritative teaching contradict that of the, Sadducee, of the Sadducees, but Jesus' miracles backed up his claim that he was from God. When Jesus raised Lazarus, a man who had been dead four days, and he did it in Bethany, just two miles outside Jerusalem, the chief priest Caiaphas was incensed. And it says in John 11, he plotted to kill Jesus. So the religious leader of a nation is plotting to kill Jesus because his teaching and popularity undermined the Sadducees' doctrine, authority and position. So when they arrested Jesus, they took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, who condemns him to death. The chief priests are recorded as mocking Jesus in his agony on the cross. But after Jesus died, even in death, they remain afraid of Jesus and ask for a guard to be put on the tomb to prevent the disciples perpetrating a resurrection fraud. In fact, when the resurrection does take place, it's the chief priests who devise the plan to bribe the soldiers, telling them to say, his disciples came in the night and stole him away while you were asleep. The Sadducees, one large and influ influential group of New Testament Jews, were totally against Jesus because his teaching would undermine their careers, their lives, and their place in society. They had everything to lose. They were the wealthy aristocrats and merchants. And does this explain their hostility against the apostles in Acts 4 to 9, where Peter and John keep getting hauled before uh, the chief priests in, in the temple and later perhaps against Paul in Acts. Maybe those Jews in these synagogues scattered around the eastern Mediterranean were merchants, were perhaps a lot of them Sadducees. Now the Sadducees robbed God. They robbed him of power in their denial of the afterlife because God gets no satisfaction against the wicked. All wickedness escapes judgment. It removes God's power to give life and it reduces God's power to merely that of an earthly king. Earthly kings have the power of death over their subjects, but they do not have the power of life. They can't bring any dead person back to life. But in Deuteronomy, as I read Deuteronomy 32, God declares 
he can put to death and he can bring back to life. But the Sadducees denied such power of God. <clears throat> now we're going to see an immovable object meeting an irresistible force. The immovable object is the Sadducees. They've made their mind up. Nothing will change them. Not even overwhelming evidence of Jesus' resurrection in their hometown after they have put him to death and stuck a guard on the tomb. It's because they deny the resurrection in principle. They just cannot accept it into their belief system. They've locked that idea out. Though they are religious leaders of a country, they've closed their minds also to the bulk of the Jewish scriptures, only accepting the parts they quite like. Is that you? When you look at the Bible, do you have a, a pick and mix mentality with God's word? Oh, I, I like that chapter. I'll read that one 10 times, but this other stuff, I'll just rip it out, put it in the bin. I don't need that bit. Is that how we are with God's word? A pick and mix mentality? The, the Sadducees, in their denial of the afterlife, denied God's satisfaction against the wicked. It robs him of his power to uniquely give life and it reduces God's power, as I said before, to merely that of an earthly king. In the Sadducean world, there is no justice, is there? Because there's no justice in this life, in this world, and that's self-evident. Because there's no just judgment after life, there's no consequent reward or punishment. So ultimately, there is no justice if there is no afterlife. And that is the position of the Sadducees. But this irresistible, this immovable object is met by the irresistible force. And the irresistible force is the power of the Holy Spirit, who not only raised the crucified Jesus back to a new and eternal life, but also brings repentance and faith to those whose trust is in Jesus. For all their success in the world, and they were the very top of Jewish society for more than 200 years, they were wrong. There was two great nails hammered in the coffin of the Sadducees. One, a resurrection. And two, the second great nail was a great falling down. The resurrection of Jesus on their doorsteps after their efforts to kill him shook the Sadducees to the core. But they couldn't contain the risen Christ, nor the news about him being, priest, uh, be, being preached, even within their own ranks. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, A great many priests believed. Acts 28, which we've just read this evening, takes place in AD 62. Only eight years after these events, the Romans destroy the Jewish temple and the whole of Jerusalem, killing or enslaving everybody who was left there. The Sadducees' place of power is literally made into rubble 
and their source of wealth is taken from them. We never hear of them again. Today, Orthodox Judaism describes the afterlife as a central Jewish teaching, deriving from their belief in reward and punishment. So maybe the Sadducees died out, but do you, in practice, live like a Sadducee today? That is, you believe in a God. You know, there's, there's just got to be something out there, but it has no consequences for your life. And certainly not for after your death, because you're convinced death is the end. So for you, if you think there's no resurrection, no judgment, no reward in heaven, no punishment of the wicked in hell, you've basically got the same belief as these Sadducees 2,000 years ago. Are you like that? Well, in my experience, too many people today think exactly like the long-lost Sadducees, the immovable object of those Jewish Sadducees is gone, but the irresistible force of God's Holy Spirit is still at work today in hearts and minds. The Hope of Israel. Now there's a very good book that has been published in the last two years, and I meant to bring it with me and I could have um, you know, done a Steve in a book review, uh, but uh, Unfortunately, I left it on the table at home. came out in 2020 uh, by Brandon Crow, who's an associate professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, and it's very good. I recommend it to everybody. I've read about, I don't know, two-thirds of it, and I agree with what he's said, so he's, not, he's doing very well. <clears throat> and some of what I say in the next few pages uh, uh, are taken straight off what he's written. So, Paul here in Acts 28, verses 16 to 21, Paul is staying with Christians in Rome. In verse 17, he calls for the Jewish leaders in Rome to come and see him. After all, he's, uh, he's on house arrest. And he explains to them why he's in Rome. And in verse 21, they say that they've neither received any letters from the high priest or anybody in Judea, nor has any visiting Jew uh, from there even mentioned Paul to them. Nevertheless, they're interested in the way, they're interested in Christianity, they're interested in learning about Jesus, and they want to know a lot more, so they arrange a day for many of the Jews in Rome to come and hear Paul's teaching. Verse 23 says, Paul explains and solemnly testifies to the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets all day long. The key verse for me in this passage is verse 20, where Paul says he is in chains here in Rome for the hope of Israel. Paul's claiming that his beliefs are the mainstream teaching of the Old Testament and that all Israel, all Jews would have this same hope as him from, this, uh, from reading 
of the Old Testament. So what is the hope of Israel? Well, the first thing is about David's greater son and the establishment of the David's greatest son's everlasting kingdom. Time and again, the Old Testament speaks about the Messiah, the Christ, the greatest son of David, who will have an everlasting kingdom. At Christmas, uh, we read Isaiah 7, where it talks about the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his uh, government, there should be no end, it says. But which human descendant of David can have an everlasting kingdom? Why? It's obvious, isn't it, with hindsight, but not looking forward, it's obvious, one who has already died and has been raised to a new and everlasting life. They could have an everlasting kingdom, couldn't they? All the rest of them can't. And Jesus is that Messiah. And Paul and Peter quote in Acts and elsewhere, Psalm 16, verse 10, which David wrote on this very subject. For you, David talking to God, says, will not abandon my soul to Sheol or hell. That's one thing. And then, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. God, you know, cares not just for our souls, he cares for our body. And King David knew this. He knew that he personally faced certain death, and indeed he died. But David is sure that his own future resurrection is secure. Why? Because he knows that God will not allow the Messiah, God's Holy One, to undergo decay, and that the Messiah's resurrection is the basis for David's re resurrection. Have you ever wondered at the statements of God in the Bible? God who cannot lie regarding the eternal nature of David's throne. King David was a prophet and he wrote this psalm which speaks about the Messiah. And Psalm 16 verse 10 predicts that the Messiah will, be, will die and be raised. It's only by resurrection can the son of David reign over an everlasting kingdom. And so the resurrection is the means by which this Old Testament text and many other Old Testament texts concerning the Messiah are proven true. What's the hope of Israel? The greater David's everlasting kingdom. What else is the hope of Israel? The forgiveness of sins. In Zechariah 3, verses 8 to 9, God says, listen, I'm going to bring my servant. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. The branch, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And Jesus, being God's suffering servant, by his death on that cross, removed our sin in a single day. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 9. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked 
and with the rich in his death, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And then it says, verse 11, after he suffered in Isaiah 53, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The suffering servant of Isaiah dies atoning for the sins of many and yet is raised to life. This is Jesus as proved by his death and resurrection. And the third hope of Israel is not just that Jesus is raised from the dead, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, which I read earlier, Jesus is just the first fruits of the coming resurrection of the dead. It's not just about a physical resurrection of the Christ, but he's the first fruits of a wider general resurrection. David was confident that he would be raised because the Christ was raised. The Messiah's resurrection is the basis not just for David's resurrection, but for ours. As Jesus Christ is king, not just of the Jewish nation, but over all creation, so all mankind will be raised. Eternal life is part of the hope of Israel. It's there in the Old Testament. And on the back sheet of this second document, I've listed a lot of verses uh, which clearly talk about the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament, which Sadducees and others refuse to accept. The Sadducees, says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, for instance, the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. How plain do you want it? The Sadducees were wrong. There is life after death. We don't just hope, do we, for Jesus Christ in this life. We hope for him in the next one. The hope of Israel is that there is life after death for all. And it's proven in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why we don't grieve <coughs> as those who have no hope. So, Paul in Acts 28, 23, it says he witnessed to them from morning till evening explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus, that he, had, that he was the Christ, he had to suffer, and that he had to rise from the dead. And we see in this closing passage of Acts that Paul's message had the same polarising effect on the Jews in Rome as it did in the Jews as he visited all across the Eastern Mediterranean. We see the, the split. Was it a split of Pharisees against Sadducees? Well, do you believe there's a life after death? Do you believe perhaps there is a God out there? But do you accept that he's spoken through the scriptures, all of them, and that he's raised Jesus from the dead? Do you know that there's a life after death 
for both me and you? Do you know that there's this resurrection and that there is a judgment of all our thoughts, words and deeds? What's your response? Verse 24 said, says, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave.